The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Open the word together this morning, Isaiah chapter 9. Please open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 9. We are going to take a break for the next few Sundays, today and the next two Sundays, from our study of the book of Romans. We're in Romans 12. We've just spend a number of weeks there. We're going to take a few weeks off as we celebrate Christmas and do that question and answer time. We want to focus our hearts the next couple Sundays on Christmas and on the coming of Christ and on the amazing reality of the incarnation. Christmas season is upon us and kids are soon going to be out of school on Christmas break and you'll be soon attending parties and doing all the wonderful Christmas traditions that you normally do. There'll be food and there'll be exchanging of gifts and all kinds of wonderful things that happen this time of year. There is something fun and exciting about all the traditions and sentimentality of, of this time of year, but if we're all honest, it's easy to get lost in the midst of all of that. It's easy to lose our focus in the midst of all of those activities of what Christmas is really about. It's, it's easy to lose our focus of who Christ is. It's easy to talk in generalities this time of year. It's easy to talk about joy and peace and love and hope. It's easy to talk about generalities like the reason for the season. We, we throw those terms around, and, and that can frankly mean many different things to many different people. The reason for the season might just be a time to be kind to others, a time to pay it forward, a time to give gifts, a time to have the joy that maybe you don't have the rest of the year. It could be very general like that. And in another term, the spirit of Christmas can mean many different things to many different people. It can be a time of family time or get-togethers or laughter or the giving of presents. And those are all fine sentiments and those are all wonderful things associated with Christmas. But obviously for us as believers, those are not the focus of Christmas. Focus of Christmas for us is the arrival of God in human flesh, the arrival of Jesus Christ, the arrival of Emmanuel, God with us. And so for today and for next Sunday, we as a church want to rivet our hearts on that wonderful reality. We can still do all the wonderful things at this time of year, and certainly we will do all those things, but we need to hear of Christ We need to hear this time of year of the Word made flesh. We need to hear about Emmanuel. We need to be reminded of the fact that God sent His only begotten Son to this world. We need to hear about the incarnation. We need to hear about God robed in frail humanity. We need to hear about how God stepped out of eternity into time, into space, into the human realm to become a man. We need to be reminded of the one who came to save people from their sins. We need to be reminded of the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. And So for today and for next Sunday, I want to turn our attention to Isaiah chapter 9, the first seven verses, particularly verses 6 and 7. These are familiar verses to us. We know them well, but I've never preached on them. I've preached on all the gospel accounts of Christmas, the arrival of Christ, and a number of other passages related to the coming of Christ, but I've never preached on Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. But we need to. 
They're familiar verses. You hear them sung, you hear them read. You could probably quote them. If I asked you to quote these two verses from heart, you've heard them so many times since being a young person, likely. We even hear it sung in Handel's Messiah and the Hallelujah Chorus. It's these words that, that find their way into that masterpiece. But these words are more than just something that we should hear read. They're, they're more than just something we should hear sung. There are words that contain for us the incredibly rich truths of Christ and His arrival and His predicted coming 700 years before He actually came. It's a monumental prophecy. It is, as some have called it, the centerpiece of all Christmas prophecies. And they describe for us the long-awaited Messiah. They describe for us not only the most important person for the Israelites, but the most important human in world history. And they're given for us seven centuries before his arrival so that the world might recognize him. These verses describe who he is. They describe the, the nature of his coming into this world. They describe his name, his character, his attributes so that the world would recognize him. And what's so ironic about it is the world didn't. Despite this marvelous description, despite this clear proclamation of predictive prophecy about the coming of our Messiah, the world missed Him. And I pray we don't. So let's read these verses. Follow along as I read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. It says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people will walk in darkness. The people who, who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. And they will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Those incredible words describe for us the coming of Messiah. And I think it's difficult for us in a 21st century setting to truly appreciate what these words would have meant in that day. We're not Jewish. We're not living in a theocracy. And so I think it's difficult for us as Gentiles living 2,700 years after these words were spoken to, to really sense and grasp 
the significance of these words. We don't really understand what it would have been, li- what it would have been like to live in the rubble of Israel's monarchy. We don't really understand what it would be like to live under a litany of failed Jewish kings, one after the other. We don't know what it would be like to live in a country where you know God is opposed to you and is against you because of your rebellion, although we do know that somewhat today. So let me set the stage. Let me just have you feel somewhat of the weight of these words as we embark upon our study of these. You'll remember that David was the ultimate king of Israel. He was Israel's greatest king. He was the one who kind of brought in the golden age of Israel during his time. He was their best king that they ever knew. He defeated their enemies for the large part. His borders were the largest they ever knew. Their enemies were largely subdued. And and David essentially transformed Israel into a superpower despite their small size. Unfortunately, that didn't last. And under Solomon, things began to fall apart. You remember Solomon's life, though he started well. He unfortunately chose to assemble for himself a thousand wives and concubines who turned his heart away from the Lord, who caused him to desire wealth and foreign gods and idols, and he gave himself to those things. And as a result of that, after his death, The nation was split, two kingdoms, northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And for the most part, the Israelites who lived in those kingdoms were led by incompetent, godless, and foolish rulers. Just just think what it would have been like to live in a nation where essentially one after the other of your leadership was a failed leader, ungodly incompetent, rebellious against God. All of the kings of the northern tribes were exactly that, evil. All of the kings of the southern tribe, except eight, were evil. And like priests, like people. Like shepherd, like sheep. Go back up to Isaiah chapter 8. And let me just, again, set the stage for you. I want to show you what what it was like in that moment, in that day, as Isaiah is prophesying and giving us this marvelous prophecy of Christ, I want you just to sense the weight of what it was like if you were a godly Jew, if you were part of the remnant living in that day, this is what you were living with. Look at verse 5 of Isaiah chapter 8. The Lord spoke to me further, saying, Inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh, That's an illustration of himself. They've rejected the the comfort and the peace and the comfort that I bring them, and they rejoice in resin and the sons of Remaliah. They've gone after false gods and false idols, and they're they're engaged in idolatry. Verse 7, now therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks. That's a reference to the coming Assyrian army who would come and conquer Israel in the northern kingdom, who would come and invade Judah a short time later. The king of Assyria would come and he would be the agent of judgment against God's people for their rebellion, and he's likened here to a, a river over overflowing its banks, Assyria is. It will sweep on into Judah, which it did. 
it will overflow and pass through. Verse 8, it will reach even to the neck, and the spread of its wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. This is what it was like to live in Israel. Judgment and oppression and God's hand against you because of your king's wickedness and because of your wickedness and because of the the rebellion of the nation. Skip down to the end of chapter 8. Look at verse 19 says, When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? This is what was happening in Israel at that time. Instead of going to God and asking Him about their future, instead of inquiring Him of what was going to take place, they they were contacting the dead. Sorcery. Occult practices. Using mediums and spiritists to consult with the dead. Verse 20 to the law, the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to His Word, it is because they have no dawn. They should have gone to God's Word. They should have gone to God's testimony. They should have listened to His counsel. They, they should have gone to the authoritative Word of God, and they didn't. They were contacting spiritists and mediums. And what was going to happen, what did happen as a result of this rebellion on the part of Israel? Look at verse 21 of chapter 8. Then they will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn up that when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness and the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into the darkness. There is so much apostasy and there is so much rebellion and there is so much rejection of God in Israel at this time that they had come to the point that they were cursing God. And because of that, God's hand was against them. There was distress, there was anguish, there was gloom, and there was spiritual darkness upon the people, all because of their spiritual rebellion against God and His revealed Word. Times of great wickedness, times of great darkness, great rebellion against God. And so if you're you're a godly Jew in the midst of that environment, what gives you hope? If you're living that day and you're trying to figure out and make some sense of this, what what would give you hope in the midst of that? And you can see the parallel to our day. We're living in a wicked place and we're living in a wicked land and we're living in a time of rebellion against God. What gives us hope and what gives us confidence in the midst of these dark times? A promised deliverer? The coming king, the ideal king, the true king, a son of David beyond comparison, one who would shine forth into spiritual darkness. There is an anointed one. There is a coming king, a coming deliverer, one who would redeem his people, one who would shine forth into that spiritual darkness unlike the world had ever known. One who would be the king that Israel had always been longing for and had never truly experienced even in David. There's hope. And chapter 9 begins with this this hope. Look look at how it begins, chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no more gloom. He's just said at the end of verse uh, 22 in chapter 8, there is gloom of anguish, but there's coming a day when there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish 
In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. There's coming a day when there will be joy and there will be gladness and the gloom will disappear and God will make Israel glorious. Verse 2, and the people who walk in the darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. He says there's coming a day when this deliverer will shine forth into spiritual darkness. This sad judgment of God against His people, which has brought this rebellion uh, and this darkness of rebellion on their hearts. There's coming a day when, when God will deliver them out of that. He will shine forth into their brightness, with brightness. They will see a great light. Verse 3, you shall multiply the nation. This is Isaiah speaking to God. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness, and they will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. He says, God, there's going to come a day when you're going to multiply the nation. You're going to bring gladness. You're going to bring them joy, and you're going to do that when you free them from their bondage, from their enemies. I like what one writer says. He says, here Isaiah looks off to a day when one mightier than the Assyrians of this world will break those yokes to pieces. And he too will impose a yoke, but it will be easy. And it will not be an expression of arrogance and cruelty, but of gentleness and kindness. Do you see the hope? There's coming a day when God will one day throw off their yokes deliver them to the point that verse 5, look what verse 5 says, to the point that one day every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. There's coming a day when God is going to deliver his people and stop the wars and stop the final conflict to the point that you could throw all the implements of warfare into a fire and they will be burned because there's no need for them anymore, ever. So if you're a godly Jew in Israel in 700 B.C., that's the hope you're hanging on to. That's what you're looking forward to. That's the hope of this coming deliverer who would be an ideal king, who would be unlike the other kings that they've experienced all throughout their history. There's coming one who will deliver them, the anointed one. And we sing about this even in our songs today. And sometimes you've wondered how these songs... What are they getting at? Let me, let me just read one for you. We'll sing it tonight. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. O come, thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Have you wondered what that means? It's exactly what Isaiah is talking about. A time of doom and despair. A time of longing, earnest expectation for a coming deliverer. But who is he? Who is this coming deliverer? Who is this ideal king? Who who is the one who would accomplish this great victory for his people? Who is the one who would bring the light that would penetrate their spiritual blindness? Who is the person through whom God brings 
war to an end and establishes true freedom for his people. Who is he? Who is this deliverer? Who is this anointed one? Look at verse 6, 4. Here's the answer. After all that wonderful description in the opening five verses of the hope that was coming to them as a people, the answer, the deliverer, is found for us in chapter 9, verse 6, 4. A child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us. Let that sink in. The deliverer is a child. The coming king is a son, an extraordinary child, one who would become king in Israel, one that Israel desperately longed for, a baby, an infant, who is none other than Christ, the Messiah. This is what Christmas is about. And to the Jewish nation, Isaiah's prophecy was news of a coming king, the Messiah, the one who would bring that future hope they were so much longing for. And to the rest of the world, this this promise of a coming Savior, God incarnate, who would dramatically and forever alter human history. It's remarkable. And so for time this morning and next Sunday, I want us to consider the description of this child, a description of this coming son. These two verses, verses 6 and 7, describe for us his birth, his nature, his attributes, his government, his reign as King of kings and Lord of lords, and we want to briefly consider him this morning. I want to give you three points about this ideal king. Three points from verses 6 and 7 that really help us understand what this king would be like, our Savior, who now we look back 2,000 years ago. We're going to look just at the first two this morning, and we'll finish the second point and the third point next Sunday. So three points about this ideal king described in these two verses. Number one is the nature of the ideal king. The nature of the ideal king. And I want you to notice in verse 6, that very first phrase that says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. There's something we learn right off the bat that, that this child is going to be very unique. In fact, he's going to have a very unique birth. There's been some unique births in human history. I think I've shared with you before some of these, but... The smallest baby ever born to have survived a premature birth. A little girl named Emilia, born in Germany in 2016, September of 2016. She was not getting enough nutrition, and so the doctors realized if she has any hope of survival, they would need to take her early, which they did by C-section, weighing eight ounces half a pound, and she survived. Remarkable birth. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, of course, there's the the largest child who's ever been born. 1879, Anna Bates, a Canadian woman, gave birth to a baby boy who weighed in at 23 pounds, 12 ounces, and was 30 inches long. 
I think he came out talking. <laughs> Unfortunately, he didn't survive, but in 1955, a woman in Italy gave birth to another boy born 22 pounds, 8 ounces. And then there are the miraculous or wonderful, unique births of those who've given birth to multiples, twins and triplets and quadruplets. It's not uncommon for us today to hear now about sextuplets and even a set of octuplets. And then there's the unique birth of the oldest mom, a woman in Italy who a few years ago gave birth to her first child. She was 72, her husband was 79, and they'd been married for five decades before they had their first child. Can you imagine chasing a two-year-old at 80? That's impossible. There have been some truly amazing births, but nothing like this. Nothing like this one. Notice verse 6. A child will be born to us and a son will be given to us. Now, this is not the first time in Isaiah that a child and a son have been referred to. Go back two chapters to Isaiah chapter 7 and you know this verse very well. It's quoted by Matthew in chapter 1 of Matthew. Isaiah chapter 7 Verse 14, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 said there's going to be a child and a son. Now you go back two chapters to verse 14, and look what it says. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. The, the, the first place this promised child in Isaiah 9, 6 is mentioned is not there. It's here in chapter 7, verse 14, and we learn there that this child would have the most unique birth of any birth, a virgin birth, a supernatural birth, a birth that would be nothing short of miraculous. Incredible to think about the fact that God brought His Son into this world through a miraculous conception. It's the only way it could have happened. In fact, it had to happen that way because the virgin birth was essential to guarantee the sinlessness of the Messiah. If the Messiah is born by normal human processes of reproduction, then that sin nature would have been passed from Joseph to Jesus, and he would be a sinner. And if Jesus is a sinner, then he's not our Savior. And if he's not our Savior, then we are all doomed. So the only way for the Messiah to be the Messiah, the only way for God to send one who would actually redeem his people is for that Messiah to be born by supernatural, miraculous means of a virgin birth. He must be born of God. And that's exactly what Isaiah tells us in chapter 7. Go back to chapter 9, verse 6, because we now elaborate further on this child. The, the one who is introduced for us back in chapter 7, verse 14, a child and a son, is now further elaborated here by Isaiah in chapter 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us. Isaiah tells us more about him. And I want you to notice that that first phrase, for a child will be born to us, is a statement of his humanity, and the second phrase, a son will be given to us, is a statement of his deity. 
So here back in the prophet Isaiah, in this one short little phrase, you have a summary of the incarnation. You have a description of the God-man. You have a description of God in human flesh. You have a description here of the two natures of Christ in one person. So let's talk about these for just a moment. The first phrase, a child will be born to us, is a statement of his humanity. He will be born. The Messiah would be born. In other words, he he would enter into this world, he would enter into the human realm in the exact same way that all of us came into this world. We were born. And that's a statement of his humanity. He he would be human in every way. He, He would enter into this world in the exact same way every single person enters. He would experience the fullness of being human. He had to be human. And he was. Sometimes I'm asked, do I think Jesus cried as a baby? Of course he did. He was a baby. All babies cry. He was fully human. And if you think about it, the, the, the significance of this event, that a child would be born to us, is that he had to be like us. He had to enter our realm. He had to be like us. He had to, as Hebrews 2.14 says, he had to share in flesh and blood. He had to partake of human nature. He had to have a human body. He had to be like us in every way. Why? Because deity alone cannot rescue humanity. Let me say that again. Deity alone cannot rescue humanity. The only way for God to rescue humanity was to become like us. For Him to add to Himself human nature, to take on a human body, to be related to us, to be our blood relative, to be our brother, to to share a common physical humanity with us. And He did. He had a human birth. He had a human body. He had human growth. Remember Luke 2, verse 52? And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Think think about that that statement. That that is a remarkable statement of the, the development and human growth of Jesus. He kept increasing in wisdom. That's mental growth. And he kept increasing in stature. That's physical growth. And he kept growing in favor with God, that's spiritual growth, and he kept growing in favor with men, that's social growth. All the normal developmental processes that you and I go through, mentally, physically, spiritually, and socially, he experienced all of them. He had human limitations and weaknesses. He was hungry, tired, thirsty. He had human emotions. He, he wept. At times he was troubled. At times he was glad. He was fully human. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, for just a moment, think about that and try to wrap your mind around God. 
becoming a man. Think, think about this. How, how, how do you take the omnipotent, omniscient, self-existent, eternal, all-glorious God and put him into a body? Think about that. That, that, is, that is stretching our ability to comprehend. We have no capacity to understand the incredible humiliation that Christ went through in order to take on human form. The God who is no limits, the God who has complete eternality and self-existence was packaged in a little body. J.I. Packer describing this says, he says, the more you think of it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the incarnation. And I think he's right. The, 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 the more you think about this, the more staggering it actually becomes. And, and no matter what you can think of, and no fiction or kind of fascinating things that you can dream up compares to this. God in human flesh. Joe read it earlier when he was praying, Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7 says, Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. In order for God to become human, he had to empty himself. You say, of what? He didn't empty himself of his divine attributes by any means because if he did, he would become less God. So he emptied himself by addition, not by subtraction. When we think of the incarnation, we think of him having to get rid of things in order to become a man, but he actually emptied himself not by subtraction but by addition, by adding humanity to his deity, and by doing that, he had to limit the full expression of his divine attributes. And that's what took place in the incarnation. You have not a one who separated himself from his divine attributes. You had one who simply chose not to reflect and reveal all the full expression of his divine attributes. Why? Philippians 2 verse 8 says he did it by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He did it so he could go to the cross. He did it so he could represent you and I. He did it so that he could redeem us. He did it to pay a debt that he did not have to pay in order that he could secure a life that we did not deserve. So he's made like us. The deliverer is a child born like us. But he's also God. Look at the next phrase in verse 6. Not only is a child to be born to us, he says, Isaiah does, that a son will be given to us. A son will be given to us. And this is a statement of his deity. And notice he doesn't say a son will be born to us. He said that previously already, referring to his humanity. He says here, a son will be given to us. And by saying given and not born, Isaiah emphasizes the fact that Jesus existed before his birth. He's given And if he's given, then it implies he must previously exist, which he did. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, has existed from eternity past. He is eternal God. 
He is the one who has always existed from the beginning. Someone has said it this way. In the incarnation, the eternal became the mortal. The infinite became the finite. The glory put on sandals. The majestic wore clothing. The creator walked among us. And eternal love eventually became bleeding flesh. It's tremendous. A son will be given to us. One who has always existed. Speaking of his pre-existence in eternity past, he would be given to us. It's a statement of his deity. You say, how, how do we know this? Look in the verse 6. Look what he's called. And we're not going to get to all of these this morning, but we're going to touch on the first two. Look at his second title given. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. He's mighty God. It's a statement of his deity. It, it's, it would be blasphemous to call someone God who was not God. But here Isaiah the prophet declares that his name is mighty God, indicating his deity. We also know he's God because back in Isaiah chapter 7, as we just saw, that statement about the virgin giving birth to a child, he, he was to be named Emmanuel. God with us. God Himself with us. And added to that fact in verse 6 where it says, a son will be given to us, that word son is oftentimes a reference to deity. Go to Daniel chapter 7. Don't turn there, but just listen. Daniel chapter 7, when, when Daniel speaks of the Ancient of Days, he sees him on the throne and he says, before the Ancient of Days was the Son of Man. Jesus called Himself the Son of God. He called Himself the Son of Man frequently in the New Testament. Son is a title of deity. You want to know one other way that we know He's God? There's many other ways. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. You're familiar with this. One of the most marvelous descriptions of the throne room of God Verse 1, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I, Isaiah says, saw the, saw the who? I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called out to another and said, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah says, this God who he saw in his vision is a thrice holy God. Not once holy, not twice holy, but a thrice holy God. He's the Lord of hosts. Verse 4, he goes on to describe the scene that he saw. And the foundation of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Imagine that scene. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Isaiah to behold the throne room of God and seeing the Lord seated on His throne and the majestic description of all that He saw around Him? How would you respond? Verse 5 tells us how he responded. Look what he said. Then I said, woe is me, for I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Watch this, for my eyes have seen the King, 
the Lord of hosts. And one of his seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Who did Isaiah see? Who did he see seated on the throne? It says he saw the Lord seated on his throne. Do you want to know who he saw? Turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. John tells us exactly who Isaiah saw. John 12 and verse 36. Jesus has just been speaking in John chapter 12, verse 36. says, these things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. So notice who the subject is here. Jesus spoke, and he, Jesus, went away and hid himself from them. Verse 37, but though he, Jesus, had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him, Jesus. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, for Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their hearts, so that they would not see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal him. These things Isaiah said, because he saw his glory. And he spoke of him. Who's the he and who's the him in this context? It's Christ. So who did Isaiah see seated on that throne in Isaiah chapter 6? He saw the Lord Jesus Christ. Pre-incarnate, pre-existent vision of Christ. Go back to Isaiah chapter 9. Because when Isaiah says a son will be given to us, he has in mind clearly God himself. What's amazing about that is Isaiah saw the very one he prophesied about. Here he is, Isaiah, prophesying about this son who will be given, and Isaiah has seen him on the throne. So Isaiah here is predicting the incarnation. He is predicting God in human flesh, the unique combination of undiminished deity and true humanity brought together in one person with two separate distinct natures which did not mix and form a third nature. It is Jesus Christ in one person, the God-man, fully God, fully man, 100% deity, 100% humanity. Tremendous. This is who Israel was hoping for. This is who the world needs today as well. This is the one who will be the deliverer. This is the one who will bring freedom, who will, who will grant victory over sin and rebellion. And so the Christmas rescue mission was to be carried out by a God who would himself do it. Think about that. God's gift of Christmas is himself. This is what Isaiah learns. This is what Isaiah predicts. This was the hope of the nations. This is the hope of all people today. This child who is promised, who is God in human flesh, given to us 2,000 years ago. This is his nature. 
what are his attributes? This is point number two. Number two, number one is the nature of the ideal king. Number two are the attributes of the ideal king. And we're not going to get all the way through this. Let me just introduce these to you, and we'll pick it up again next week when we come back to this. But what, what will he be like? What will this child deliverer be like? What will this Messiah be like? What, what kind of character will he have? What will be his attributes? What will be his nature? And what will he be like? If you're a parent... Don't you want to know that? When your kids are young, you think often about what are they going to be like? When they grow up, what are they going to be like? What's their family going to be like? What job are they going to have? What, what will be their character? What will be their attributes? What will, be they, what will they be like? How will they relate to other people? And here we have in Isaiah 9, 6, a description of this child who would grow up and we learn exactly what his nature and his character are going to be like. Notice verse 6. The government will rest on his shoulders. He would be a king. The ideal king, the true king, a ruler, there would be a kingly aspect to his ministry. They would have a, he would have a kingdom and he would sit on a throne and he will rule over his people. And, and we're going to talk all about this next week because it's so critical because verse 7 is all about that. It's about his government, and it's about his rule, and it's about his reign. So we're going to come back next week and talk about that. But I want you to notice in the rest of verse 6, there are four names, four titles given to this wonderful child king. We'll look at just the first two this morning. He's a wonderful counselor. He was to be a wonderful counselor. If you have a King James Version that probably separates those two by a comma, making it wonderful, comma, counselor, but actually it should be taken as one title referring to him in the summary of these two terms, just like the rest of the terms are summary terms when brought together. He is the wonderful counselor. He's not just wonderful and a counselor. He is the wonderful counselor in contrast to all the wicked kings of Israel and all the wicked kings of Judah who were not wise in their counsel, who were actually ungodly and wicked in their counsel, this king would be wise. He would be true. He would be omniscient. He would know all, and he would exercise his knowledge of all things perfectly. Look over to chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 describes this. The first five verses describe this great wisdom which this stem of Jesse will have. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, and the Spirit of, here it is, wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked and the righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Verse 2 says he's going to have the spirit of wisdom. 
a spirit of counsel, a spirit of knowledge. And why is he going to have that? Because verse 2 says he's going to have the spirit of the Lord God. God himself will rest upon this coming child king, this deliverer, and that's why he's going to have wisdom, and that's why he's going to be the wonderful counselor, because God himself will rest upon him. Can you imagine that? Imagine a king who judges correctly every single time. We have no idea what that's like. Imagine a counselor who knows exactly what to say in every single situation. We have no idea what that's like. Imagine politicians, governors, judges with complete wisdom and knowledge of everything. We don't have that. But Messiah will. That's exactly when Christ came. When he came, he displayed that wisdom. He displayed that supernatural wisdom. He displayed omniscience. He displayed knowledge. He displayed his absolute understanding of all things. Though limited in some ways, he understood exactly what he needed to understand, and he was able to bring the wise counsel of God upon every single situation. Colossians 2 verse 3 says, In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you understand that? In Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are held. And you can see that as you go through the New Testament and you see him interacting with people, he knew every single person perfectly. He knew how best to minister to that woman at the well. He knew what those Pharisees needed to be confronted on in Matthew chapter 23. He knew every single person perfectly. He knew when to teach. He knew when to confront. He knew when to rebuke. He knew when to reach out to someone who was struggling. He's the wonderful counselor. He needs no advisors. He needs no cabinet, no counsel, no input from others, no help from anyone else. He has the wisdom to rule fully and completely with complete omniscience of all things. Do you understand that? Do you understand that there is one who knows everything that's going on in your heart? And do you understand that there is one who knows exactly what you need and how to counsel you, and how to shepherd you, and how to minister to you. He knows what you're struggling with. He knows your needs. He knows when you're doing well. He knows when you're doing poorly. He knows exactly what you need. He knows every single thing about you. He's the wonderful counselor. And 700 years after Isaiah wrote those words, in a little manger in Bethlehem, was a little baby who was the epitome of God's wisdom. It's tremendous. Wonderful counselor. And, secondly, mighty God. He is a mighty God. He he is God Himself. Again, this is a statement of His deity. He is God. He is the only sovereign, the only king, the only true God. He is the only one on whom people can and should call. He is the one true and living sovereign. And because of that, verse 6 says He's mighty. 
He's powerful. He is strong. He is able to do all that God has given him to do because he himself is God. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign. He is ruler. And think for just a moment. Just think about just in the Old Testament some of the displays of God's power that you see. Creation in six days. Created with a word. That's power. And Christ has it. In fact, John chapter 1 tells us he was the one who spoke it into existence. He was the one who created it. Think about the flood, the power of the flood, and think about what God did in unleashing the fury of the flood, and God opened the depths of the deep and opened up the floodgates of heaven. God is that powerful to be able to do that. And think about the God who destroyed the Egyptians and the plagues and brought his people out through the Red Sea and delivered them into the land through the desert after wilderness wanderings and crossed the Jordan River, stopping the whole river. That's power. Jesus has that. Not only is he mighty God to do those kinds of things, he's also the sovereign master who can forgive sin and defeat Satan and conquer death and liberate us from the power of evil and reign over his people and answer our prayers and restore broken relationships and broken souls. He is mighty God. And laying in that manger 2,000 years ago was the earthly expression of the power of God in the person of Christ. Do you see how glorious this prophecy is? And do you see why at Christmas we can't just get caught up in the games and the trivialities and the gifts and the food and the parties? That's all wonderful stuff. But if that's all the farther we go, we miss Christmas. It's about the ideal king. The one who, verse 6 tells us, is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, And we'll look at the others next week. Let's pray. Father, we need these reminders because we confess that we are quick to forget. It's easy for us at this time of year to fall into the busyness of this season. It's easy for us to fall into all the activities that are taking place, and we thank you, Father, for reminders like this from your word of what really transpired in Bethlehem two millennia ago. We thank you for this great promise. We thank you for this great prediction. We thank you for this marvelous prophecy, and we thank you more, though, that you fulfilled it exactly as you promised. And we praise you that Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, is the one who fulfilled this and all other promises and prophecies in the Old Testament. So, Lord, as we embark upon this week and next week, let our hearts respond with wonder, love, and praise at the fact that you have given us a child born to us and a son given to us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people.
No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.